Welcome to the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers and patients can learn about hormones and explore the body's most complex communication system. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Smeaton, Chief Medical Officer for Dutch. In this season of the Dutch Podcast, you'll hear from some of the brightest minds in integrative healthcare as we share new perspectives on hormones and challenge a few common misconceptions you might have heard in some circles. We'll bring you cutting-edge education ranging from beginner level to advanced, along with the validated research to back it up. Be prepared to think differently and deepen your understanding of how functional hormone testing can profoundly change the lives of patients. On this week's episode of the Dutch Podcast, we have such a great speaker, someone who has been in integrative gynecology for decades. You've probably seen her speak before, read her books, Dr. Felice Gersh. And Dr. Gersh is talking about something that is near and dear to her heart and a big piece of her life's work, which is polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS. But it's believed to be now somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to at least 20% of all reproductive aged women have PCOS. In this episode, we cover so much. We talk about the physiology, both of that primary ovarian kind of PCOS, but also the other ways that PCOS symptoms show up in women, but with a different etiology. PCOS is essentially a diagnosis of exclusion. You have to rule out like ovarian tumors making too much androgen. You have to rule out similar for the adrenal gland. If you're a provider or a patient, this is gonna be so important for you to know what labs to run so you can determine what's going on for your patient. We also talk about where PCOS comes from, uh, why it happens, and also how it can be used to a patient's advantage. You are gonna love this episode. It is packed with actionable insights for sure. Dr. Gersh has now written two books about PCOS and she has a new book on menopause, 50 Things You Need to Know. Here at Dutch, we have the pleasure to host Dr. Gersh in Las Vegas at the A4M Longevity Fest this year for a free book signing. For those listeners today that are attending A4M's premier event of the year, make sure you stop by the Dutch booth on Friday, December 15th to meet Dr. Gersh and receive a free signed copy of her new book. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Dr. Felice Gersh is a globally recognized expert on women's hormones, gut microbiome, and circadian rhythm. She was one of the first dual board certified integrative gynecologists in the United States. Dr. Gersh is passionate about helping patients on their journey to optimal health. She currently serves as an affiliate faculty member at the Fellowship in Integrative Medicine through the University of Arizona School of Medicine. Dr. Gersh is a born educator. You'll hear this in the podcast. She's been featured guest on many, many podcasts, webinars, and medical documentaries. Dr. Gersh, we are so happy to have you here with us today. Thanks for joining. Oh, my pleasure. It's just so fun to get to see you again. It's been a while and to have a nice long chat and help whoever's out there that needs some help. Absolutely. And we're talking today about something that really you've honed in on as a key area of your expertise, which is PCOS. And I'm excited to talk about that because the statistics around PCOS, I mean, really, it's like the most common you know, hormonal condition for cycling females, really. How common is PCOS? Can you just share a little bit about it in general for our listeners? Sure. The incidence is definitely increasing. It's worldwide. It's across every continent. And no one's really keeping data. So in in the United States, the only real data we have is from insurance claim forms. And, Mm. you know, they're often, often mislabeled. 
And that's actually been an issue for many years in terms of not getting the right diagnosis. And then, of course, once you get the diagnosis, you need to have some kind of therapeutic approach. And that's been challenging. But it's believed to be now somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to at least 20 percent of all reproductive aged women have PCOS. And it actually does not go away at menopause. It just sort of blends into all the other problems that women in menopause actually have to deal with. This is that's so interesting because I the last statistic I'd heard was about 8%, but that I mean it's interesting with PCOS because the diagnostic criteria has changed since I've been a doctor even, you know, in the last 15 20 years, they keep revising it. And I think just from my own clinical experience, you know, I tell my patients it really should be um polycystic ovarian spectrum versus syndrome because even women that don't meet all the diagnostic criteria have problems. And I, you know, I think that there's this probably gray area, like most diseases between healthy and diagnosable that women kind of get caught up in that lead to a lot of cycle abnormalities. I mean, I don't know if you agree or disagree. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, when you get a doctor group together, a little committee, and there are many different committees and they make decisions about labels like, well, what criteria meet this diagnostic label? So you have to realize these are man-made labels. That's so, a great point. And so whenever you use the word syndrome, it's really going to be, like you said, a spectrum of different severities. And it's usually going to be sort of a hodgepodge of different causalities. So all you're talking about is presentation. So the current definition to get the label, you know, you get the label, you have PCOS, you have to have two of the following three. And this is actually controversial because one is you have to have androgen excess. So that Mm -hmm. would be elevated levels of the adrenal androgen, D-H-E-A-S, or testosterone, which comes from both the adrenal and from the ovaries. And or you have to have clinical manifestations, which would include things like, and this has actually only recently been added, cystic, you know, persistent, difficult to treat acne, hirsutism, which has always been in there. That's, you know, excessive hair in the wrong places for women and loss of hair in terms of thinning. It's called androgenic alopecia, which no woman wants to have. And that's one criteria. You need one of that And then the next would be irregular cycles. And the next would be manifestations of polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound. And even that has been a changing diagnostic Mm -hmm. criteria. Like, well, how many do you need? Like, is it 10, 20? Now it's like over 20 because the quality of the ultrasounds have improved. So you can see more of them. So even that's been like a floating label and diagnostic criteria. And also at what age is it even appropriate to use ultrasounds on the ovaries because young teen girls will almost always have PCOS ovaries because they're like baby, you know, training wheel ovaries. Mm -hmm. They're just, you know, trying to get the hang of it. So they will often have the appearance of PCOS on their ovaries if you get an ultrasound on virtually any 14 or 15 year old. So this has been a challenge. And in like the androgen excess PCOS society, they say you need to have excessive androgens in order to get this label. Because if you don't, you have a problem. That's for Mm. sure. If you don't have periods, but you don't get that label. So you can see it's been sort of a jumble thing. So you're totally right on just recognizing that 
you know, this is a hodgepodge. It includes different etiologies in terms of causation. And it is important to recognize that PCOS is essentially a diagnosis of exclusion. You have to rule out like ovarian tumors making too much androgen. You have mm-hmm. to rule out similar for the adrenal gland acquired or late onset adrenal hyperplasia. So there's a variety of conditions that can create a mimicking effect, even like Cushing syndrome. So you can't just have the symptoms and then automatically say, we're done. You know, No, you actually have to rule out other causes for those symptoms before you can really say, okay, now you have classic, we'll say PCOS. And you mentioned there's a lot of etiologies with PCOS. Before we get down to the root cause level, which I don't even know if we know, but I'd love to understand like what you speculate is leading to this increasing number of women being affected worldwide. But before we dive into that, can you talk a little bit about what happens physiologically in females with PCOS that's different from females that don't have PCOS? Absolutely. And yeah, PCOS can lead to just a myriad of problems throughout all the organ systems of a woman. But where does it even begin? Right. So women with PCOS have a problem. Now, this will be, we'll call it the classic ovarian-based PCOS. So the ovaries in a woman convert testosterone that's made in the ovaries into estradiol, the estrogen that the ovaries make. And this occurs through the action of an enzyme called aromatase. Now, it's believed that genetically, there was a group of women going back, going back to ancient times who had maybe a slight reduction in the activity of this enzyme built into their genes. So they had a slightly less efficient conversion of their ovarian testosterone into their ovarian estrogen, the estradiol. But it was very slight. So it was so slight that they didn't actually have manifestations of elevated testosterone in the sense that, you know, they had to shave every morning or they had the problems of the acne, but they had maybe slightly reduced fertility. So maybe instead of having like eight babies, they would have four, which actually was an advantage to the woman because going through pregnancy, having babies, that's a life-threatening thing, even today, unfortunately. But back, you know, back in the ancient times, it was obviously even more dangerous to a woman. And also those little babies, they kind of sapped a lot of nutrients from the woman. So it, you know, it was very depleting. And also raising them was very time consuming. So Having a fewer number of babies could be a survival advantage for that woman. Maybe that's why they kept, you know, reproducing little girls with <clears throat> with their own gene set, and then they would have their own little girls. Also, it's believed they had a slightly elevated testosterone, not enough, like I said, to create problems and maybe, you know, slightly reduced fertility. But it's believed, it's hard to prove, but it's believed that they were the women who were like the leaders of their tribe. They were sort of the dominant females. They were maybe more courageous, more outgoing, a little bit stronger. And in fact, they've done some studies of women Olympic gold medalists and found that they have that sort of ancient sort of PCOS where they have slightly elevated testosterone levels at just enough to give them that little competitive edge, maybe not just in terms of having more muscle, but maybe in terms of more drive, more ambition, Mm -hmm. and so on. 
So, so was, sorry. I want to interrupt you because this is the first time I've ever had a conversation like this about PCOS, but I love it because, <laughs> you know, I think you're speaking from a place where there is an advantage. I mean, I think so many listeners probably are joining in because they might, and I'm going to choose this word intentionally, feel like they're suffering with PCOS because there are a lot of symptoms that are unwanted. But you're coming at it from the positive evolutionary point of view, which is a really powerful mindset change for females who are going through this. So anyway, I love that you're talking about it from this point of view. And absolutely, with the advantages to higher testosterone with bone density and ability to build Mm -hmm. muscle and things like that, you're right. There can be so many advantages. So sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to call out that shift because- you know, I think we talk about a lot of syndromes and diseases, whether it's ADHD or PCOS in this case, and we focus so much on disadvantages and challenges, but it's also really great to talk about some of the benefits or the kind of positive mindset yeah. way to look at this. And that's ultimately what my goal, you know, is when I treat my patients with PCOS is to help them revert to that ancient status of, mm. you know, like the the leaders, the, the, the most uh, like wonder women of their tribe, you know? I love it. So what's happened though, is that this like advantageous situation has been turned on its head because nowadays what has changed? Unfortunately, pretty much everything. If we look at the environment in terms of toxicities, well, we live in a world of endocrine disruptors. And the one that has been studied the most regarding PCOS, but this is just the one that's had the most study, is that ubiquitous chemical BPA, the bisphenols, which you know includes a variety, but A is the one that was prevalent and still is. And it's basically to some degree in everyone at some time, if not at all times. And maybe there's some like a little bit of disadvantage in the ability to like get rid of, you know, detoxify and eliminate the BPA in women with PCOS, especially the ones with the worst manifestations. I've done my own little testing and I found that more of the women with, and I've not seen anything published on this though, that have the more severe versions often will have like MTHFR homozygous. So they have Mm. some difficulty in methylation. Maybe they just, it's not that they're necessarily exposed to more. Maybe they just can't handle it as well. But what they've also found is that in utero, when the endocrine system is developing, and that means like the formation of the, the organs that create the hormones, the, the enzymes that you know, are part of that process, and the receptors for the hormones are all in the developmental stage. When you put endocrine disruptors, what we call like xenoestrogens and other kinds of chemicals, <clears throat> other kinds of chemicals that can interfere with any aspect of hormonal function, like the production, distribution, binding, degradation, elimination, any of those kinds of facets, all or any, that's an endocrine disruptor. When they get into the mom, it turns out that the levels in the mom are a fraction of the levels that concentrate in the fetus. So the fetus like is a sponge and it is like a magnet and it has many times higher levels of these chemicals, particularly they found with BPA. So the levels in the mom that some people deem safe, which I don't agree with, and also now they've discovered that 
the testing actually measuring the levels has been wrong and they've been mm. underestimating the levels in the moms, but the levels in the fetus are many times even higher. So if you take a susceptible woman, genetically speaking, you know, had the genetic issues that lead to a very mild case of PCOS in the ancient times, and then you add in endocrine disruptors like BPA during this really critical time developmental in terms of the endocrine system in utero, and you put in BPA and who knows what else, you know, because you know that there's a soup out there of chemicals that oh, yeah. interfere. What happens is, and this has actually been now published, in women with PCOS, the receptors for estrogen, the alpha receptor, the beta receptor are malfunctioning. So that's a problem right there. In addition, the enzyme aromatase, which had some very slight reduction in its ability to make the estradiol from the testosterone in the women who've been exposed to chemicals, this enzyme works even less well. So it's like a double whammy. The women with PCOS, like the classic ovarian version, they don't make estrogen in their ovaries as efficiently. And the estrogen they do make isn't working properly on the receptors. So although they may seem to be in a, a world of estrogen, because it's often the wrong type of estrogen made in fat tissue, which we can talk mm -hmm. about, it's estrone because the enzyme aromatase exists elsewhere besides in the ovary, and its ability to function can be quite different from the, the ability in the ovary. So you have women who actually have a problem with estrogen, estradiol deficiency and malfunction on the receptors. Now, the brain has receptors to everything. It's like the massive sensing organ of the body, and it like picks up like do I have enough of this? Do I have enough of this? And then it puts out signals to regulate all these different things in a variety of ways. So if the brain, the sensors in the brain say, oh, I don't have enough estradiol, it puts out the signal from the hypothalamus of the brain to the pituitary gland, which has sometimes been called like the master gland because it controls through the brain's direction, many different endocrine organs. The pituitary puts out the first hormone that helps to trigger more testosterone production, LH, mm -hmm. or luteinizing hormone. So the ovary now is going to make more testosterone. Why is that? Because testosterone, 100% of the time, is the precursor to estradiol. All estradiol, the estrogen that the ovary makes, is derived from the testosterone that's produced in the ovary, 100%. So what are you going to do? If you have a brain that says, I need more estrogen, it's going to trigger the ovary to make more testosterone. Mm. But think of it as an assembly line where you have sort of a, a problem, like a little you know, slow area. So you end up with a lot of the precursor and then less of the, the downstream product. So you have, uh-oh, too much testosterone, not enough estrogen, estradiol. And the brain keeps saying, but I need more estradiol. So then you have higher, higher levels of LH. You end up with more testosterone. And then that creates a whole variety of problems throughout the body. Too mm. much testosterone, too little estradiol. It's quite a mess. So, and it ends up affecting virtually every organ system. You know, the, the brain in terms of mood and sleep and the fat tissue, it's like getting all the, the wrong instructions because 
These hormones are so critical as information delivery systems, instructors. So you have the, the different organs not actually functioning properly, the gut, mm. the gut microbiome. And then on top of all of that, after the, the baby is born, and, and all of this usually becomes heavily manifested after puberty. But now we know that even in like a seven-year-old girl, you can already see some changes because of the lower levels of estrogen in her body, because there's some problems. There's Estrogen is produced not just in the ovary, in a little seven-year-old. She's not making any estrogen from her ovaries, but she has adrenal glands that mm-hmm. make the androgens, even not huge amounts in little girls, but they make steroids. The adrenal glands are working all the time from the day you're born. And some of those androgens that are made by the adrenal are converted locally in tissues. So that's called paracrine. They're made into estrogen. But what happens is that estrogen, the receptors, remember, even though they can make it, the receptors are not working properly because of the exposures to the endocrine disruptors. So even in little girls, the estrogen isn't working properly. Mm. And estrogen is a master of metabolic regulation for every age in every gender. And so what happens is even in little girls, their metabolism is off and they don't burn fat as well. And they're often the little girls who are age seven and eight. They haven't even like started puberty. And they have like that little chubbiness, like Mm -hmm. why is, you know, they eat just the same like their neighbors and the little girls, but yet they have that little tummy, they have that little chubbiness. Mm -hmm. And it's, if you actually check like a hormone that's made by fat tissue that's involved in fat burning called adiponectin, it's actually low and that's not good. You don't want to be low. So it actually is manifested. PCOS can be manifested even in the pediatric population of little girls. So so it's really, you know, it's, it's, we have to get more pediatricians on board to actually start looking, looking at this. Right. So you can see it's very complicated. Definitely. And, you know, I think, I mean, you, that's a lot to unpack there, but I think thinking back to kind of the origins of PCOS, you know, you call out the genetic predisposition, which probably was advantageous when those genes, you know, began to be expressed in that pattern. And then I think it's helpful for people to understand that in utero exposure probably plays a role in what they're dealing with today. I mean, I love that you bring that up because I think a lot of patients blame themselves. Like, why me? Why is this happening to me? What am I doing wrong? I know when patients come into me, I mean, I treat fertility, but we see a lot of PCOS as a subgroup of that. And for both populations, it's like, what am I doing wrong? I'm trying to eat well. I'm trying to exercise. I'm trying to manage my stress. And they really are kind of doing everything right, yet still this is happening for them. And I think it's helpful to understand that some factors, you know, genetics and utero exposure are completely out of your control and you're kind of dealt the the hand you're dealt with. And then you can just work on your own behaviors to optimize what you have. So I love that you brought that up. And, And certainly, the physiology of it is so complex, you know, and you've talked mostly about that ovarian classic PCOS. Um, can we shift gears to talk a little bit about what we hear this a lot, like PCOS types or different formats of that. And you even mentioned kind of that classic ovarian PCOS. What are some of the other ways that PCOS etiologies differ? Well, it's believed, and remember, nobody's keeping exact data on any mm-hmm. of this, that 80% of women who would meet the label of PCOS 
are this sort of classic ovarian. And we can talk more later about like what else has happened to make it worse, you know, and because understanding the problem opens the door to treating and resolving the problem. That's why, you know, I don't want everyone out there hearing this to think I'm doomed. No, you're not because no, I know you're absolutely. not doomed. Stand by. Yeah. You're not and doomed. Sorry. Do you, are the underlying etiologies similar for the different types or would it make more sense for us to stay with that classic type first? Well, you know, maybe we will. Maybe if, Actually, okay. we know more about the classic than the other type. Now, I know this has been an enlightening chat so far with Dr. Gersh. Make sure you stay tuned for next week's episode where we will talk about all things lifestyle and treatment for females with PCOS. Dr. Gersh had so many fantastic goodies to share. We had to split it into two rich episodes. So make sure you join us next week. See you then. We are so glad you joined us today for this in-depth conversation. If you want to learn how Dutch testing can help you profoundly change your patients' lives, visit us at dutchtest.com providers. There, you can become a provider and gain access to exclusive hormone education, like our new Dutch interpretive guide and the Mastering Functional Hormones Testing Course, a self-paced online course designed to help you become a hormone expert. If you enjoy listening to the Dutch podcast, please help us spread the word by commenting and sharing the show on your favorite streaming app. Also, stay connected with us by following at Dutch Test on Instagram and Facebook, where you'll find even more news, education, and provider resources. Thank you again for joining us today. Come back next week for more.